You're listening to the Supertalk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Supertalk. My name is Mel Burks and today we will be reflecting on the extraordinary year that was 2020 and what's on the horizon for capital markets in 2021. Joining me today is Walter Stroganboom, the Chief Investment Strategist for Europe and Asia with Northern Trust. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Lots to talk about. What a year. Uh, I, I hate to use the word unprecedented, but I think we can say it is unprecedented. I'm interested, Walter, in your view, with COVID occurring, what weaknesses were revealed in the market? Well, it's been such a, an interesting year. And I think when it comes to those weaknesses, the, the things that we noticed really clearly was first, that the credit system really wasn't as robust as we thought it was after the great financial crisis. There was a clear need for central banks to step in and step in quickly and step in big to ensure that the credit system kept on functioning. And by credit system, I mean the trading of corporate bonds, high yield bonds, as well as credit provisioning to companies. It really came quite close to freezing up again. And again, luckily, central banks saw this and had learned from the experience in the great financial crisis, and they prevented uh, the situation from spinning out of control. But to see that weakness pop up again so quickly was a little disconcerting. The other thing that we noticed uh, is more from an economic societal perspective, which is that you know we all know that we are on a trend of rising inequality. This is a long-term trend, and we all know some of the driving forces behind it, such as globalization. What we saw in the COVID-19 episode, very interestingly, is that because of the need to work from home, that there was actually a, initially a push higher uh, towards inequality because the people most capable of working from home were the people in high-level service jobs that could be done from home, whereas people in lower-level service jobs, the restaurant workers, et cetera, et cetera, hospitality, travel, they couldn't. So initially, before all the support mechanisms kicked in, we actually saw the inequality trend accelerate, and that was something that was obviously not expected and certainly showed uh, that the, from a society perspective and an economic perspective, there are some weaknesses baked into our current uh, system. It's interesting because I think one of the things we talk about, whilst COVID has had an economic impact, it is not an economic crisis, it's a health crisis that has affected the economy. So I wonder how markets respond to that differently to a traditional economic crisis, which I guess uh, has some different uh, manifestations than a health crisis. Yeah, and that's actually very true. And what you've seen is a lot of people have been comparing this to a natural disaster, but of course, one with a much longer lead time than normally. Normally, a natural disaster hits, and and then you have uh, a few months of recovery while you you know basically repair the damage. I mean, in Australia, you know everything about. Uh, about that with the bushfires earlier this year, which we thought was going to be the story for 2020. Remember those days when mm -hmm. we thought that was going to be the most important event and, and then COVID hit. Um, but yeah, that's the, uh, I think that's the big difference here. Uh, this has been treated by markets largely as a natural disaster. And that means that there is an expectation of a robust recovery. But the question is, just like in a natural disaster, how much real damage has been done? How many companies, how many people are actually truly out of a job, out of business, and, and won't come back even when behavior normalizes uh, next year when the vaccines get distributed. So that's, that's still an open question that we 
that we that we don't know the answer to. And I guess it also depends a little bit on the supports that are in place. And so the fiscal stimulus that's often, that's been put in place in, an, in a number of countries will gradually taper off or, or um, stop at some point. And I, that I suspect will reveal some of the weaknesses in the real economy, which, which, things essentially which have been propped up by that by that fiscal stimulus or that government support. Yes, very true. Uh, we are firm believers that the monetary and fiscal stimulus side of things needs to continue definitely for the next six months because clearly it'll take time to produce, distribute and administer the vaccines. But then even afterwards, I mean, most people expect monetary policy to stay loose very long. We're talking years. Um, and on the fiscal side, I think the idea that we'll quickly enter a period of austerity uh, and, uh, and budget cutting is also uh, is also wrong. I think on the fiscal side, the support will also stay in place, basically because it, we can, because the interest rate levels allow us to, and allow us to do so at, at a low running cost, but also because we just don't want to open ourselves up to the downside risk of doing too little here, and basically snuffing out the recovery just for the, just for the sake of, uh, of a better trajectory in our debts in our debt levels, which might be self-defeating anyway, if you do it too early. So definitely important to keep that support in place. And from our perspective, definitely also a strong expectation that it will stay in place. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. Now, you'd think that uh, COVID would be enough to, to make 2020 an interesting year, but there are a few other things that have, have happened which are fairly significant, and we might cover a couple of those. But obviously something that's probably quite close to you, given your location, Walter, is Brexit. Uh, we, we watch from afar a little bit, and it, it, it seems to be um, the never-ending story of Brexit, but interested in your view on, on its impact on, on markets. Yeah, it feels like waiting for Godot. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it ever going to happen? And um, it is going to happen. In fact, I do think that this week is crunch time. So uh, hopefully uh, we'll get some clarity within the next couple of days. It's been four years since the referendum. Um, and the notion that we've been working on is focus on the constraints that both the UK and the EU are facing and try to ignore as much as you can their preferences. I mean, we get inundated with preferences. Politicians love to talk about preferences, but their behavior is normally determined by their constraints. And on the UK side of things, it's clear that Brexit and a no-deal version of it brings with it a real economic constraint, namely the fact that uh, the expectation is that if in that scenario next year, they'll lose 2% of GDP, and then thereafter a continuous drag as well. From the EU side, that's less of a, a less of a constraint because the economic impact is much smaller, but it's still an economic negative that in a time like this uh, is not something that you want and that you're looking for. So from that perspective, from a constraint-centric perspective, we still think a deal is slightly more likely than not. But even then, it's going to be a skinny deal. It's going to be a bare bones situation. And the UK and the EU are going to feel a, at least a little bit of economic pain, even in a good scenario. So this has been a, from my, from my point of view, an unfortunate political development, but one that uh, from our current vantage point uh, is simply gonna be either a small negative or a slightly larger negative. And we're, we're gonna have to wait and see which way it goes. We still think a deal is slightly more likely, but clearly it's, yeah, it's, it's quite uncertain as we speak. 
Well, I think it's it's one of those things, as you say, that uh, no one can absolutely predict, but it, it looks like it might lean one way rather than the other. But it's interesting from an institutional investors' perspective in Australia, what what things should they be alert to? I guess in that in that Brexit space. So I think the the most important thing is to to have a clear view of your exposures to 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 the key assets in play, particularly the pound. Um, the pound has has had a good run here. The pound is clearly pricing in a much higher likelihood of a deal than a no deal. So there's a skewed uh, risk exposure there. There's a, a little bit of upside, uh, but there's a lot of downside should a no deal happen. Uh, so that's that's important to note. And uh, also, if you have certain economic exposures, you know, we know that, for instance, Japan has been talking to the UK government about its automobile production within the UK. Uh, I think the same would apply uh, to, to Australia if you have any significant economic exposures to the UK uh, that is relying on access to the EU single market, then you, you might want to take uh, take that into consideration that that might be a little bit more difficult going forward. But other than that, I would say, I mean, Brexit for, for all that it entails and how interesting it is, is not, it's simply not a global event. Um, so that's, you know, that gives me a little bit of comfort that from an Australian vantage point, you'll get over it no matter what happens. Mm, it's interesting. I think moving on to a subject which probably is a little bit more of a global uh, global impact is is the role of China. And I guess interested to hear your views on uh, China and, and its impact on markets, but also perhaps in the context of the US election as well, because we've seen some beha some behaviour from China of late, possibly uh, while the one administration transitions and another one starts. So interested in your views on, on China and where we see that going in the next little while and what impact that'll have for investors as well. Sure. I mean, China is a super interesting story. There's a short-term story, there's a long-term story. In the short term, it's clear that China is more assertive. We've already seen that with Hong Kong, and we're now seeing it in some of the diplomatic dust-ups uh, happening in the region. And of course, Australia is uh, in the throes of one of those dust-ups as we speak. I think that just goes to show that from a regional perspective, China is moving towards uh, a, bigger, uh, a bigger role, a, a more hegemonic take on the region. Um, and that's partly influenced by the fact that it can, uh, because the US is currently preoccupied elsewhere. It's in a transition phase uh, in terms of its leadership. That being said, from a long-term perspective, uh, we actually think that the underlying uh, dynamics are unchanged no matter who the president is, whether it was Biden or whether it was Trump. We felt that there was always gonna be a long-term separation between the West, and I do think Australia is culturally more aligned with the West here, although economically clearly uh, very exposed to China um, and China itself. So we have this one world, two systems theme, but we think that the two um, systems, uh, that's the West versus China, uh, are gonna cooperate where they can, but separate everywhere else. And they're gonna build their own uh, infrastructure uh, in things like tech, um, and, uh, and, and, and other areas and trade systems as well, as we saw with the R RCEP. And that, and that trend is still very much in place. But what's going to be interesting to see is where Trump was, was working with that trend and, and accelerating it, really, because he took China on more forcefully than Obama did, whether or not Trump, uh, whether or not, but he also went alone. And what is going to be interesting to see is whether or not Biden is going to change that 
and he's going to try to work in within that trend, but do it from a coalition perspective, where he's going to rope in Australia, rope in Japan, rope in South Korea, rope in Europe, and build a coalition against China to uh, to basically keep it uh, contained. And that's that's something that we're going to be watching very closely next year. Whether he makes steps to do that. Yeah, it's interesting, and I guess. As with any of these scenarios, there are opportunities as, as well as risks. So I guess um, broader than just perhaps China, but looking at 2021, as you see it coming down the line, it's not far away. What do you think the major opportunities are that may present themselves in, in 2021 for institutional investors? So I think, so, so we also should uh, take note of how China has handled this crisis. Uh, how it was able to grow throughout 2020 and how it's slated to have a pretty good 2021. So China in and, of, in and of itself is presenting us with an opportunity both from an economic perspective as well as from a markets perspective because it is uh, in a relatively good place. Uh, it's also been able to do so without some of the more aggressive monetary and fiscal policies that, that they had to employ in the past uh, and that of course the West has, has had to employ uh, this time around. So China and the emerging market spectrum, which is, let's face it, uh, China dominated, uh, is, is a place that we're, uh, we're interested in for 2021. Uh, otherwise, we think interest rates will stay low, so not a huge uh, opportunity there, but certainly uh, something uh, to keep in mind in case you are worried about rising interest rates. We are not in that camp. And finally, on the credit side, uh, we do think um, that there's still uh, some value to be extracted from both investment grade as well as high yield credit. So that's something that we're watching for 2021 as well. Now, a lot of people have also been querying us about value versus growth. Is that is there finally going to be that rotation? Now, I have to, you know, disclaimer up front, isn't, that's not a trade that we put on within our tactical asset allocation framework. But of course, we do take note of underlying uh, trends and value versus growth, also as it pertains to regional tilts. And we do like the non-US um, developed market spectrum, so that's Japan and Europe, uh, because they are a little bit more value oriented and because we expect 2021 to be dominated by the recovery story, not the COVID-19 story. And value does tend to outperform in times of recovery. So that's those are the opportunities that we're watching for 2021. And I guess an obvious question is how reliant is the recovery on the vaccine or vaccines, plural? Yeah, yeah. And I, I wish I wish I had a crystal ball um, to, to tell you that. So we, we do take the over uh, in terms of the vaccine development, uh, uh, production and administration. We do think that that will be the dominant story for markets that they will look through, which will be, I don't, I don't want people to misunderstand me, it will be a tough six months, mm. or at least three months ahead of us, uh, be, both from an economic perspective as well as from a health perspective, because we are in for a very tough winter with case numbers rising, and unfortunately death counts rising as well. But beyond that, which is where markets are focusing, um, the vaccine news has obviously been much better than expected. More candidate vaccines, with a much higher advocacy rate than we had hoped for. And we do think that's the, that's the dominant thing. But then of course, the second question comes into play. Once those vaccines have been administered, will everybody take it? How much real damage has been done? How many businesses have simply not survived? 
how many jobs have been permanently lost? Will people return to normal behavior quickly or will they be a little bit more careful with their travel and their dining out and their going to the movie theater? And those are questions that we simply don't have an answer to yet uh, that do you know, give us a little bit of pause. And the way I've been describing it to clients is that yes, we do think um, uh, 2021 will be a year of recovery. We do think the vaccine story is the dominant story, but you should also, in terms of, uh, you know, US TV shows, curb your enthusiasm a little bit because there are still large open questions that we need to have answered. And, um, you know, in that, in that context, there will be disappointments and you should be prepared for those. Yeah, so I guess that reflects that there is potentially an expectation that we'll con there will continue to be some market volatility because of those uncertainties. Absolutely, absolutely. I think volatility will come to us, whether it's from disappointments with certain policy actions, both monetary and fiscal. You know, we've already seen how difficult it was on the fiscal side this time around in the US, and we still don't have any clarity on whether they will get a deal done. And then, of course, uh, on the vaccine front, the recovery front, there will be disappointments for markets to contend with, uh, and that will mean volatility will stay high. And I guess in closing, given the long-term horizon that uh, superannuation funds, so institutional investors in Australia have, I'm wondering what your words of wisdom are, Walter, for 2021 for such investors and, and things they should be looking out for. Well, so in the long term, we are clearly in a world that we think is less um, good <laughs> for investors. So our five year, which is slightly shorter than I think the time horizon that your superannuation funds would look at, but still our five year outlook for a 60-40 portfolio, 60% equities, 40% fixed income, gives us a return of 3.6. Um, that's down from 6.3. And that's a very meaningful reduction. That world, we think, uh, or something close to it, is very real. So that does mean that you should, again, uh, curb your enthusiasm with respect to what you expect from future returns. And as, you know, if I take an Australian take on it, especially with an equity market so dominated by financials, uh, we have actually cut our dividend expectations for, US, for Australian financial sectors, which then cuts the whole uh, dividend expectation for the index, uh, there is simply not as much return from your current starting levels, both in interest rates as well as valuation levels in equities. There isn't as much return uh, ahead of us as what we've been experiencing over the last five years. And that, that needs to be part of your conversation. Do you take more risk to cover that? Do you lower your ambitions? Do you increase your premiums? What do you do to, to work in that environment. And that's a conversation we're having a lot with European pension funds. And I'm sure you're having those same conversations in Australia as well. That's all for this week's Super Talk. Thanks to Walter Sturkenbrook from Northern Trust. For more episodes of Super Talk and for further information about the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.